Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Happy holidays. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's Roundtable, where we look back on the big stories of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. This week brought an unusual show of bipartisanship on the Hill, where Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell agreed on a plan to raise the debt ceiling, even though Lindsey Graham warned that Donald Trump would punish any Republican who voted for it. We also saw an unusual standoff online between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin, where Biden warned Putin of serious consequences if Russia invades Ukraine. Donald Trump lost another round in court in his bid to withhold key documents from the January 6th House Committee. Hand them over, said the D.C. Appeals Court. And Washington gave a solemn farewell to warrior, statesman, Senate leader, and presidential candidate Bob Dole. Here to put it all in perspective for us today's panel, Philip Bump joining us, national correspondent for the Washington Post. Hello, Philip. Good morning, sir. How are you? Okay, Lauren Burke, host of the Burke File podcast and writer for Black Press USA. Hi, Lauren. How are you, Bill? Great, thank you. And John Bennett, editor-in-large of CQ Roll Call, back with us again today. Hello, John. Hello, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and John, let me start with you because we saw something very unusual in the uh, in the Capitol Rotunda yesterday. As we speak, family and friends are starting to gather at the National Cathedral for the funeral for Senator Bob Dole yesterday. Speakers celebrated his civility and bipartisanship. Civility, John, and bipartisanship. Phrases we don't hear much anymore around the U.S. Capitol. No, we do not. Uh, the you know the the current era certainly conjures that old saying: if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Um, yeah, it, it was a throwback. Uh, at least morning yesterday, as as the late senator's uh, casket arrived, with all the pomp and circumstance, certainly that he was due. Uh, he was injured in uh, in, in war. Uh, you know, in, in his book, he doesn't know if it was uh, a mortar round or something else that injured him, um, but he carried those injuries for the rest of his life. And and certainly, you know, he bucked his own party when, as he was you know, coming yeah. up in the Senate ranks and then, you know, two-time majority leader, um, he raised corporate taxes uh, at one point and, and reached across the aisle on other issues. And that was reflected in the ceremony, the, the mm-hmm. comments yesterday from, um, well, I thought this was interesting. I watched this again last night after the the fog of the workday had cleared, and I thought it was really interesting that uh, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy did not speak at, the, at yeah. the ceremony in the rotunda. And and I rewound it, 
as, as I was watching it. And I just, I, I, it, it really struck me that he didn't say anything. And this is, this is a, a Republican leader in McCarthy who is, you know, who really reached out and raised money and, and tried and has built a bridge to the Freedom Caucus uh, uh, element of his caucus. Those are, of course, the, the most conservative members of the Republican caucus in the House. And it was clear that McCarthy thought he couldn't say anything about, you know, Bob Dole, a guy who, who cut mm-hmm. deals with Democrats and every other congressional leader and the president, uh, Joe Biden, spoke yesterday. And, and that really um, I thought that really stuck out from from yesterday with, with lying with uh, Senator Dole lying and stayed in the rotunda. Very interesting. And we'll never know, I guess, whether or not he was invited to speak or chose not to. But uh, that that was striking. Philip, um, it was so, but in, in a sense, there was a contradiction in itself, because while they were celebrating bipartisanship uh, and Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell had, in fact, made this bipartisan deal to lift the debt ceiling this week, Lindsey Graham goes into the Republican caucus reportedly. Uh, and uh, warned Republican senators if they voted for this deal, Donald Trump would never forgive them. Yeah, it was obviously there will be books written in the future about Lindsey Graham's uh, sort of change of heart, you know, especially since, say, 2008 to today. Uh, I think that he's not incorrect. I mean, we saw there's this report from Axios that was just released about how Donald Trump is furious with Benjamin Netanyahu because Benjamin Netanyahu, as the then head of Israel, one of you know the United States' strongest allies in the Middle East, had the temerity to, to congratulate Joe Biden for having won the election last year, right? And that that was just that was it. He's done. Like Donald Trump cuts him off, according to this report. Uh, you know, the, so I think it's true that Lindsey Graham, when Lindsey Graham says Donald Trump will not forgive him, the question that has always been the lingering question for the Republican Party. Party is the extent to which they should worry about it. They have, you know, almost to a person chosen to worry about it a great deal, uh, generally out of uh, concern for primary threats. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the threat actually is real, of course. Uh, and it certainly is yeah. a strange argument to make when you're talking about matters of policy. And, and Lauren, isn't it true with all the um, yearning maybe for the good old days that we heard yesterday that the fact is the good old days are gone, right? I mean, a Bob Dole or even a Ronald Reagan could not get, probably could not get elected as a Republican nominee today. Well, right now they're gone. It is uh, interesting to watch when we see these funerals. Uh, I went to uh, Colin Powell's funeral for The Guardian, and uh, it was the same sort of thing where you just have this feeling as you're standing there that you're looking at a completely bygone era of politics, even though it's not really, wasn't really that far away. Um, It is interesting to think about the fact, uh, as John brought up, that Kevin McCarthy didn't say anything. I suspect the reason for that is that, you know, what would he say? <laughs> what would he say? You're talking about somebody who was, uh, you know, uh, we see in Congress now, obviously the World War II generation is gone. The Vietnam generation is gone. Max Cleland passed away recently. Obviously John McCain passed away over the last few years. And that's replaced with what exactly? It's replaced by a bunch of people who, uh, are branding themselves by posing with guns with their family during Christmas, you know, uh, it just is odd. So I, I, I guess it is a bygone era. It is uh, always interesting to see some of the people from that era. Tom Daschle, you know, was sitting in a rotunda and Chris Dodd and so many others uh, and consider that that's gone. But, uh, you know, you never know how the pendulum in politics might swing back again um, with anything, including bipartisanship. I mean, we did see McConnell 
uh, <laughs> interestingly blank on the debt ceiling, which I think I don't know that anybody was <laughs> expecting that. But anyway, I, I do, you know, I, the points here are well taken about this being sort of uh, watching an era that has passed by. Right. You mentioned um, the family photos, the Christmas photos, which raised a lot of stink this week. First, Tom mm-hmm. Massey from um, North Carolina, right? Right. Uh, and then Lauren Boebert uh, from Colorado. Uh, both of them putting out their family photo of uh, Christmas photos, which, by the way, we sent a press family photo out this week. There were no guns in any of those photos. <laughs> right. Um, so, so, John, this is, this is pretty taking the Second Amendment argument, I guess, pretty far. Uh, any repercussions from McCarthy or anybody else for that display of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> love of guns? No, nothing. Uh, we haven't heard anything uh, from McCarthy. My colleagues uh, at Roll Call uh, set out to to try to find any reaction and um, young Chris Marquette struck out. Uh, there, there's nothing out there. Um, my same colleague Chris Marquette last week, after uh, Lauren Bober, um, uh, I guess it was last week, last few weeks uh, around the Thanksgiving, the long Thanksgiving holiday, holiday, of course, referred to Ilhan Omar as a terrorist. Uh, suggested that she might have a backpack with a bomb. Uh, going into the Capitol for votes. Um, of course, that elevator uh, conversation involving a Capitol police officer never happened. Um, she, you know, McCarthy and and I believe others uh, did force uh, Bober on that one to uh, call Ilhan Omar, uh, yeah. call ostensibly about an apology, which inevitably went poorly, and, and Omar ended up hanging up on her. Um, but that's about as close as McCarthy is going to get, it seems like, uh, with these conservatives on on discipline, disciplining them. He's just not going to do it. He wants to be speaker that bad. It's that simple. He, mm-hmm. he, wants, to be, he wants to be speaker of the House so badly that he will put up with just about anything. Right. Well, uh, in terms of uh, whether the days of civility and bipartisan will come back, uh, Matt Gates, uh, one of the hardliners, of course, in the House, and one who's whom uh, Kevin McCarthy is also doing anything he can to keep on his team, uh, Matt Gates indicated what we can expect if Republicans were to take back the House, in, at least on his agenda, uh, in 2022. Here is Congressman Gates. Philip, I want you to, uh, we'll go to you after we hear this clip. The notion that Republicans are going to take control of the House and we're going to hold hands in the warm spring rain with the Democrats and legislate is ludicrous. It's not going to be the days of Paul Ryan and Trey Gowdy and no real oversight and no real subpoenas. It's going to be the days of Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Dr. Gosar and myself. Notice, Philip, he's attacking other Republicans, not attacking Democrats. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a a good point. I mean, I think that Obviously, he's trying to establish uh, the the idea that the Republican Party, as you knew it, is now the Republican Party that is the the, the one that's very focused on these cultural fights. It's very focused on uh, elevating this this sort of uh, this 
innate sense of dissent uh, that is obviously animating a lot of what's happening. That the, the, the idea that you're going to go out of your way to agitate and, and troll your opponents. Uh, you know, the Lauren Boebert comments about Elon Omar were, were to a large extent sort of centered on elevating this idea of, you know, a very particular view of who Elon Omar is that's obviously rooted in, in race and, and, you know, country of origin, all of these sorts of things this that really do define, to a large extent, the Trump era of the Republican Party, you know, what what Gates is saying there is essentially, yes, this is, we are not going back to the Republican Party that existed before Trump. This is now fully a Trumpian party. Now, look, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I mean, Matt Gates, you know, the, the people he named there are not people who are even <laughs> now hold a lot of power from the Republican Party. And I think Kevin McCarthy is probably not too unhappy about that. Uh, and, you know, the extent to which Gates is still in, in the House by the time they take the majority, I think is also a, another question to be answered. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this is the rhetoric that they're going to say, look, this is new and we're tough and we're fighting. And, you know, that's sort of been the, the undercurrent for the past six years. Uh, so, Lauren, it's hard to see how this would play. But if you were um, if you were uh, working for the DNC or think uh, preparing ads for the DNC, didn't Matt Gates just give you the perfect ad to run in a general election in 2022? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not the DNC that does the best messaging for the Democratic Party. It's the Lincoln Project. So you have that problem. You know, I'm not sure Phil was was making the point that uh, with regard to the where the obviously Democrats and Republicans are headed and whether or not this brand of the party is the brand of the party. I spent uh, the last few months watching Glenn Youngkin up close and I kept running into Republicans who were more than happy to be voting for somebody that they didn't have to explain and they weren't, you know, outwardly mm. embarrassed by. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the fact that Youngkin was able to keep Donald Trump out of Virginia uh, was a major accomplishment, that I think, led to his victory. But uh, it's still true, obviously, that you have this right, right wing of the party that wants to brand tough and wants to brand threats and wants to brand their Christmas family photos with uh, semi-automatic uh, rifles. It's amazing. Uh, it, it's sad to watch. Uh, it continues. Um, you know, full disclosure, uh, there was, there's only been four members of the, uh, of the House who, who are members of the Muslim faith, and I worked for one of them, Andre Carson, as his comms director seven or eight years ago for about a year. All of them have been threatened like this at one time or another. Uh, uh, Keith Ellison, you famously remember when he was being sworn in, was uh, used uh, Thomas Jefferson's Bible, and there was a big statement by a congressman in Virginia against that. I mean, it, it's something that's so sad to see that uh, the Republican Party can't just make some basic, uh, you know, uh, announcements against basic bigotry by their membership. And the fact that Kevin McCarthy fails to do that is sad. And the fact that he's predicating being speaker on that is sad. Uh, so uh, former President Donald Trump, um, bad day yesterday. He's in front of the D.C. <laughs> appeals court. Uh, to say that my documents and my phone calls and emails are all privileged, still under executive privilege, the Supreme Court and the, or the U.S., I'm sorry, the D.C. Appeals Court, uh, in a 68-page opinion, said no way, hand them over to the January 6th committee. Uh, Philip, this is a pretty huge, uh, sig- significant um, decision, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember that there was little expectation that the decision would be anything but this, that the the arguments that were being made by Donald Trump were not seen as being particularly credible, uh, but were instead intended to do one thing that they were successful at, which is slow things down. I mean, it's impossible. It's impossible by now to talk about the January 6th committee without talking about the the likelihood, if not the near certainty at this point, the Republicans will regain the House next year, uh, at which point they will, without without any ceremony at all, simply spike the January 6th committee. It'll just cease to exist uh, once they once they have power. And so as such, the clock, which has already been ticking, was is ticking much faster. And the extent to which Donald Trump can slow things down by having these lawsuits or that Steve Bannon can slow things down by, you know, not going to trial for months uh, on his contempt charges. All of these things are targeted at that deadline of January 2023, at which point whatever the January 6th commission has or hasn't done is all they're going to be able to do. Well, John, they've got two weeks, right, where they can appeal, Uh Donald Trump can appeal, ask the Supreme Court to decide on this. Look, it's impossible to read this court, even this six to three court. But this this gets to a question of the role of Congress, the power of the presidency, and the power Mm -hmm. of a Former president. Do you think he has a chance at the court, at the Supreme Court, is what, guess what I'm asking? I definitely think Trump's lawyers have quite the uphill battle uh, because yesterday the three-judge panel, they didn't just rule against Trump. Uh, they ruled that he had, quote, no basis, yeah. end quote, yeah. to, to challenge Biden's ability to, to say that executive privilege uh, no longer applies those materials. Um, They said, quote, that both branches agree there is a unique legislative need for these documents and that they are directly relevant to the committee's inquiry, end quote. That is going to be really tough for Trump's lawyers um, to completely overturn. We've seen Judge Chief Justice John Roberts uh, join um, over the years with the, the liberal justices. Um, but I, I suspect we're going to get more than just Roberts uh, mm-hmm. in a majority uh, upholding one, what the court did yesterday. Uh, and learn, uh, Congresswoman Elaine, uh, you cover Virginia, Loria or Luria? Loria. Loria. Elaine Loria. Loria. Elaine Loria. Uh, yesterday, she spoke to the efforts by Mark Meadows and others to, you know, sue the committee or delay, as Philip indicated, and John both uh, drag it out as long as they can. Uh, but she, her comments indicate that uh, the committee is really getting some serious work done despite those challenges. Here's uh, Congresswoman Gloria. You know, we've talked to hundreds of other witnesses as well, and I'll tell you that you know Mark Meadows may have his opinion, but there's there's many others who are in communications, even in the data that he gave us in those texts and emails, you know, that are, that are painting a very full picture of, of what people knew ahead uh, of January 6th. So it sounds like they're, uh, they're getting their job done. Yeah, it's starting to pick up a little steam. I think, you know, the committee uh-huh. sort of started out as, are they going to use the full power that they have to do this investigation? And now I think it was, to me, right around the time that they, uh, you know, Steve Bannon was found in contempt and they hauled him in the court. It seemed like that was a little bit of a turning point uh, because now we're getting all these stories about how people are turning over pertinent information and text messages, et cetera, and so on. So I think a committee that, you know, obviously the, the game on the other side is to stall, to delay and to get back into power and use that power to cut off all these investigations. But, you know, that's that's a year or so away. 
So it, it's interesting to see that uh, Benny Thompson and the gang are picking up steam. Right. Okay, we had a big summit, a virtual summit this week between President Putin and Vladimir. I'm sorry. Yeah, President Putin and President Biden. Uh, let's find out what we can expect out of that and more from our panel after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. And then we'll be back with Lauren Burke and John Bennett and Philip Bump. Well, of course, the holiday season is here. Don't have to tell you that. It's a time when we're all looking for something special for someone special in our lives. And uh, let me take advantage of this moment to tell you there is no better gift than a hand-woven scarf by the real talent in our family, and that is my wife, Carol. Carol is an award-winning weaver. She specializes in original rayon, chenille, and bamboo scarves, each one of which she designs and weaves herself. They come in a great variety of colors and patterns, which you can check out on her website for a full look at what's available at carolpressscarves.com. But uh, my advice is do it soon so she can get your scarf in the mail in time for the holidays. Again, that website is carolpressscarves.com. Treat somebody you love or treat yourself with a Carol Press scarf for the holidays, carolpressscarves.com. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with today's panel. Lauren Burke joining us, uh, host of the Burke File podcast. Philip Bump, national correspondent for the Washington Post. And John Bennett, editor-in-large for CQ Roll Call. It was a new kind of diplomacy today when... Um, Joe Biden sat down for a couple of hours online with Vladimir Putin of Russia. Um, was the message delivered? Philip, what do we know? What do we hear? Yeah, I mean, obviously, both sides tend to keep their cards fairly close to their chest. And, you know, there, there are statements released which sort of summarize uh, the, the central question here, I think, you know, in addition to the longstanding effort by Biden to try and figure out what the United States relationship with Russia looks like moving forward. The main issue of the moment, of course, is the 
uh, apparent threat, uh, according to intelligence experts in the, in the, uh, the defense community, uh, that Russia is now posing to Ukraine with massing troops at its border. Uh, this has been, you know, the, the, Joe Biden doesn't need many more things that are that are headaches for him, but this is potentially a very large one. Uh, and it's, you know, I don't think that a televised or rather virtual interaction between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin is going to resolve that tension, uh, given its history and, and you know, given where it is right now. Uh, but, you know, I, I think Biden needs to at least make sure that people understand that he is having these conversations and trying to press forward uh, in trying to cajole Putin into not taking a drastic action on that front. Uh, and, you know, as such, I hope he, I'm sure the White House would be happy to argue that he, he made progress in that front. But I, I, I don't know. I, you know, this is this is one of those things where we'll learn further down the road what, if anything, was accomplished, I think. Uh, John, it's certainly a different approach than when we remember George W. Bush said, I looked into his eyes <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. the first time that he met with Putin. Right. Uh, or even yeah. when Don- Donald Trump basically said, yeah, I trust him, right? I trust him over my intelligence agencies. Uh, a little a little more of a hard line from Joe Biden. It's, uh, I guess it's harder to look into someone's eyes over video <laughs> in a situation room. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, it's a different approach than uh, than Donald Trump, who thought that uh, essentially I after covering that for, for so long that he could just charm other world leaders, including Putin, into doing whatever the heck Donald Trump wanted him to do. Uh, it seems like he did try that with Putin, of course. We never comp- we, we haven't gotten the answer on why Trump pursued Putin um, to be an ally, really a friend. It's it seemed like over the years uh, we, we still haven't gotten complete transparency on that. So yeah, it was a different approach. I think Philip is right. Uh, Biden has to do these things. He has to be seen as uh, at least trying to be tougher on Putin. Uh, it was floated from uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and other members of Biden's staff that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which, of course, uh, runs from Russia to Germany, um, is is a leverage point for the U.S. and the West. Uh, and, and sending that signal, um, we don't know if the new German government is quite on board with this idea, but, but sending the signal to Putin that if he goes into Ukraine with his military troops, that that pipeline, which is a, a really big deal for Russia, and and they need any economic uh, boost they can get right now, that that could be subject to you know shutting it off or delaying it or or, or otherwise impacting Russia negatively uh, with that. And that is you know that's the biggest piece of leverage they got. They floated that this week, and you know I I think that's good for Biden to be seen as as willing to go there. Yeah, Lauren, let me jump to a little bit of breaking news. Um, we've just learned that the consumer price inflation rose by 6.8% over the 12 months uh, just ended in November, which is uh, the largest in measure, lar- largest, uh, the, the most, of the, the largest increase, I'm sorry, in inflation in 39 years. Um, this is the last thing that Joe Biden needed to hear today. Yeah, you can say that again. And we already had Joe Manchin saying that he was worried about inflation as the latest reason as to not vote for Build Back Better. And I'm sure he'll use this news to further that further that idea, to say the least. Um, Joe Biden uh, 
probably might want to focus on foreign policy and Putin and economic <laughs> sanctions uh, because uh, that might be a more successful playing field for him, particularly, of course, given his career in the Senate as somebody who was focused on foreign policy and obviously served on the committee all those years. Uh, but that that's the type of statistic that, um, you know, clearly will be used to uh, halt everything that he's doing in Congress. And not to say that that wouldn't have happened anyway. I mean, still, there's no bill. There's no details on what they're doing now. And there's sort of a big delay game going on, as usual, uh, with these bigger bills. But something like that, I'm sure we'll hear about all day long. Yeah, Philip, um, at the same time, there are articles I saw a couple of yesterday saying that we have had the fastest economic recovery ever under (laughs) under Joe Biden. So, uh, you know, what's really going on? And is Biden getting full credit for what has happened? Yeah, I mean, it's this is one of those things where there's so many facets to what counts as economic news that it's, you know, one can, however, one, you know, holds this particular diamond in the hand, see, you know, glints in whatever direction you're looking to make up a very bizarre metaphor off the cuff here. Uh, but, you know, yeah, I mean, there certainly are indications that the economy uh, has rebounded well, uh, you know, for example, for example, the number of new jobless claims this week was at the lowest point since I believe right. the late 1960s. Uh, we've seen the unemployment rate itself decline pretty rapidly. There are all sorts of signs that the job market is doing extremely well to the point that people are scrambling to fill jobs. You know, and we keep seeing these reports of school bus drivers and that, that you know, you, you can't even find enough people to, to drive school buses around, which obviously has potential or, trickle down. Or snow, or snow plows. Snow plows, exactly. Right. Something yeah. of concern to us here in the Northeast shortly. Uh, so, yeah. Hmm. So there are these indications that the economy is doing well, but at the same time, you know, people who are not particularly concerned about the, you know, the new jobless numbers uh, are seeing, you know, gas prices rising at the pump or, or at least seeing prices higher than they were last year. Apparently, gas prices are now going down. Hopefully that will continue. That gas price, you know, a key component of inflation is energy costs. So there are all these things that make it painful in the moment for people to have to spend money as well that, that, you know, obviously makes them look at it through a different lens. And then, of course, you have competing narratives in the media talking about whether the, the economy is good or bad. So, you know, it is it is an incredibly complex thing. And you, one can say, you know, by traditional metrics, the stock market is doing well. Employment, you know, we're making big employment gains. Of course, we're also just sort of filling a hole that was created last year from the pandemic. Uh, but at the same time, people are spending more money out of pocket and they're worried, at least conceptually, if not practically, about inflation. You know, that's that I think is certainly a mixed picture. So, so John, on the question of how the media reports on the economy, you know, plus or minus or negative or positive, uh, what got a lot of attention this week was an op-ed in the Washington Post by Dana Milbank. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the headline, but if you think the media has been to- negative on Biden, here's the proof. And he cited a study done by an, a software analyst looking at over 200,000 articles in 65 news outlets, the same period last year for Donald Trump and this year for Joe Biden. And Joe Biden got as bad or if not worse media coverage, more negativity than even Donald Trump did. Uh, Is this a a real issue for the media? And uh, are people thinking about it, talking about it? Well, first, full disclosure, the data analysts, uh, works for Fiscal Note, which is the parent company of my employer, CQ Roll Call. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm going Thank to try. I'm going to try to not get myself in too much trouble here, um, <laughs> and just say that I, I have a lot of feelings about what Mr. Milbank uh, wrote. Um, I think 
you know, as someone who was was a one man White House bureau uh, for the for the most part for the Trump years, you know, there was a lot of news. Uh, Donald Trump would make news when he blinked at times. It was news. He tweeted. He said things in pool sprays. He called us back into the Oval for another pool spray to say something about the thing he said in the pool spray in, <laughs> in the Roosevelt Room to, to, to try to clean up a tweet he fired off at 6.30. And it was all news. Okay? So we wrote a lot of stories just on the news. And he was the president of the United States. I'm sorry, Mr. Milbank. I didn't elect the guy. The media, you could. there's an argument that we did help elect the guy. Fair enough. But we had to cover the presidency, and he happened to be in the presidency. So we wrote a lot of stories at 1230 and then wrote another one at 130. So yeah. I understand how, how a little bit how data works and, and, and running this kind of model. So you're going to get a lot of just straight news stories. Donald Trump said this in the Oval Office after he tweeted this earlier in the day. Now because Joe Biden ran on conventional, a conventional presidency and a, quote, boring presidency, we have more time to mm -hmm. do real reporting and write longer stories. And yes, I'm sorry, Mr. Milbank, but Joe Biden's presidency started off, I think, pretty, pretty, pretty well. He was on a roll, and then June and July happened. It is our responsibility as journalists when whoever is in the presidency, and we wrote plenty of critical stories when Donald Trump's presidency hit, you know, hit a bump in the road or three, and and Joe Biden's presidency has hit a bump in the road or three, and we have covered it professionally, and we've we've covered it through a critical lens, and the fact that Joe Biden is not tweeting right now and calling you know Joe Manchin horrible names or Kirsten Cinema horrible names because. They won't give him exactly what he wants, and, and that's what Donald Trump did so many mornings to Republicans. Yeah. Um, there's not as as many of those little stories to write. Well, well, I, I look forward to getting you and Dana Milbank on a future podcast to continue <laughs> that conversation. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but, Lauren, you've written about some of the negative coverage of um, Kamala Harris, which has been particularly uh, noteworthy these last few weeks. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a double standard there, a uh, huge double standard. I don't think anybody can name another vice president who's who's been covered as specifically with regard to her behavior and her way she treats her staff, and all of a sudden Kamala Harris shows up and we get we get all these types of stories, which, by the way, I'd have absolutely no problem with if I could find the same stories reported on, you know, on Mike Pence or something like or Dick Cheney, which, of course, you can't. I actually think that there's some validity to that reporting, by the way. Uh, it has been said that she's not a particularly easy person to work for, but that would make her no different than a million other people in politics. So then you have to ask the question, why is she the one, you know, reported on this way? Uh, I mean, the, the media has been completely changed and nobody's really studied it by the advent of uh, social media, Twitter and Facebook in particular. The speed of things is lightning right now. It used to be that the media cycle was 24 hours, and now, of course, it's not. there is no media cycle. It's every minute that somebody tweets something that somebody has to then write about. And the fact is that Donald Trump is money. Donald Trump is money. The clicks, the way that money is built in the media now is through clicks to ads. And Donald Trump was driving all of that train, and that's part of the reason why 
I think we see, you know, different reporting uh, on Joe Biden than we, we did Trump. And quite frankly, uh, you know, Biden, Biden did very well. It wasn't just that he did okay. I mean, he basically corralled a crisis that has killed 700,000 people in this country. He, that they passed the Rescue Act, the CARES Act. That was big stuff. Donald Trump is a threat to our democracy. He's a genuine crisis to our democracy. And for that reason alone, he should be considered different to cover than Joe Biden. So I thought what Dana Milbank laid out was quite interesting from a lot of different angles. Uh, this, that, this subject, obviously, in itself is a podcast. <laughs> and uh, it is, it is uh, you know, it's something that, that goes deep. Uh, Philip, you want to weigh in there with a final word on uh, the uh, the media today and whether it's treating uh, Biden fairly and uh, or deserves some of this criticism? Sure. I mean, I, I have the alternative, either the sort of the flip side uh, uh, conflict here since Dana Milbank obviously works for The Washington Post. Yeah, you know, I mean, right. I, you know, look, I, I have I. No one in the media doesn't have a strong opinion on this. I think that's safe to say. Uh, and, you know, I, who do a lot of work on data, I have questions about sentiment analysis. You know, you know, when you pick out the word good in a sentence, you know, what does that actually mean about what the sentence is trying to say? I mean, these are the sorts of things that go into this analysis, you know, but not, not to get too into the weeds on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it is the case that there is enough that is reported on a daily basis that. I appreciate that what Dana tried to do is take a big picture lens to this and say, okay, let's look at all of this. Because usually what we hear is people cherry pick stories that they don't like or stories that they think are, are, you know, egregiously stupid, which, you know, happens a lot. And then they say, oh, look, this is what the media is doing. And of course, one yeah. can cherry pick anything you want to, 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 to prove a point. That's the sort of thing we usually see. And that I think is very frustrating members of the media. Dana at least went big picture. I still think there's probably some questions about the, you know, the conclusions that he drew from it. Uh, but I, I will at least give a thumbs up to that. All right. To be continued. And you know, there are going to be books written on the media coverage of a uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden and comparing the two for sure. Um, great conversation. Uh, we took, I think we touched just about everything that happened this week, uh, except your favorite story of the week. And what, what among all the things that we cover and as busy as we are running fast, um, there's always one story that stops you in your tracks and says, Oh, how about this? This is interesting or funny or serious or sad. Um, Lauren, you want to start us off? Sure. It wasn't my favorite story, but I just wanted to use this moment uh, to talk about Fred Hyatt. Oh, yeah. Uh, in another life, uh, about two years ago, I was talking to Fred Hyatt quite a lot about uh, someone I was consulting uh, in communications, and that would be the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Justin Fairfax. And uh, frankly, at a time when the media um, is really reporting a very one-sided view, in my view, of Me Too stories, uh, Fred Hyatt and the Washington Post editorial board actually listened to Justin Fairfax, who nobody was listening to, absolutely nobody. And Fred Hyatt sat on a Zoom call with the lieutenant governor for about an hour, uh, doing something that nobody else in journalism was doing at the time, which was just listening. And there was a editorial that resulted from that, which I think changed the direction of the story. Um, so because of that, um, nobody, I would never have guessed that uh, I'd be talking about Fred Hyatt passing away this week. But um, I just wanted to mention him because uh, as somebody who's been in journalism for over 20 years and uh, has consulted a few people and had to sort of deal with this issue from, the, from both sides, watching things from both sides, 
he he showed me something there that I was very surprised to see and that nobody else was was doing, which is just uh, listening to to another side of the story that everybody else had decided was done and, yeah. and writing something on it. I'm so. glad you raised that. He certainly was a champion of journalism at its best, for sure. Uh, John, what caught your attention? Well, I recently on the show broke my streak of um, oh, sports talk a little bit about sports, but uh, <laughs> uh, let's make this two in a row and keep the streak alive. I was fascinated earlier this week and, and over last weekend by the college football coaching uh, carousel and, and the drama that has become coaching. Steve Zabin, who uh, used to be on on uh, on sports radio here in D.C., uh, he, he's always said that the NFL is a television show about quarterbacks. And I, uh, especially this year, have uh, piggybacked off that college football is becoming a television show about coaches. And we really saw that the Miami Hurricanes uh, have had a disappointing season. Uh, their 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 head coach, Manny Diaz, came in, I think, three years ago, and there were high hopes. A young coach, they thought he would be able to recruit and, and, and turn that program around. It just hasn't worked out that way. So after uh, their season finale, um, the worst-kept secret in college football was that university officials and, and the big boosters down in South Beach were courting uh, then-Oregon head coach Mario Cristobal. Um, and, you know, numbers were out there. Contract terms were, were really public and being reported. So you had a situation Monday morning as the university and Mario Cristobal were finalizing their deal where uh, Coach Diaz was actually out recruiting. He found out that he was relieved of his duties while he was out recruiting for the football team that he now no longer coaches, you know, Nobody is, is too sad for these big coaches. They have huge multimillion-dollar buyouts. But that is where we are in college football, that you can be sitting in a recruit's living room and get a text message that you're fired. <laughs> there were several generals, I think, who got text messages from Donald Trump <laughs> that they were fired. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Philip Bump, yeah, your favorite story? Sure. I would just, I would, first of all, just piggyback, you know, if I'm sitting in the room and I get that, that text message, I'm like, you know what, actually, maybe you don't want to come to the school after all. I feel like that's your <laughs> yeah. pretty natural next step. Uh, yeah. I mean, my story, I mean, not to, not to be too trite, but I just, I, this story of the tree burning outside of the box oh, in New York yes. city, uh, you know, not, not the story itself, which, you know, I mean, look, you know, anyone who's lived in New York city knows you have random weirdos who do weird things and, you know, sometimes bad things can result. Arson is bad. I, I will stipulate that. But the reaction from Fox News just so wildly over the top and so deeply in contrast to how they covered, uh, you know, uh, or how many of the people on that were covered the January 6th riot. And he's just, you well, know, framing this as just this this sign of well, the decay of civilization and this this war against Fox News and this melodramatic well, relighting ceremony they had last night. I mean, it's just, it's just well, so over the top in an extremely well, on-brand Fox News way uh but well, you know one can't help but contrast it with with how well 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 wait a minute philip how can you say that i mean <laughs> here is here here is ansley Earhart of, of fox and friends putting this whole thing in perspective the tree that unites us that brings us together it's about the christmas spirit it is about the holiday season. It's it, about Jesus. It's about Hanukkah. It is about everything that we stand for as a country. Freedom. It is. I mean, if there's this, one thing we can say, it's the Christmas tree at Fox News is about Hanukkah. I think we can all agree on that. 
<laughs> this was like their January 6th, right? I mean, it was the big story of the day on Fox. It, it, it was the lead story on Hannity and Tucker that night, right? <laughs> so, yeah. uh, right. Uh, uh, that was that was so amusing. Well, my big story of the week, um, it was out in Houston, Texas. Uh, I have always had this debate with friends and with my former producer. I'm not talking about Jay Feldman here, but my former producer, about what you do if you find with found money. If you find money, do you call the cops? Do you report it or not? We had a very uh, feel-good story about that this week when a plumber called, his name is Justin Cawley, was called in <laughs> to repair a toilet in the Lakewood Country Church. That's the mega church of uh, big mega pre preacher Joel Osteen. And he um, removed some tile, as we know, in the bathroom and back of the toilet and found a bag containing 500 envelopes with ch full of checks and cash. We don't know exactly how much money it was in it, but uh, it seems to be related to a theft of $600,000 from the church safe back in 2014. That money was never found. The investigation was still underway. I think the investigation is over. And the first thing that Mr. Cawley did was he called the cops and said, I found all this money. What do I do? Uh, for his goodness and uh, uh, good citizenship, he received a $20,000 reward this week from the Crime Stoppers of Houston. So. I, I I salute Mr. Cawley, uh, and I hope I would have made the same decision he did. <laughs> but one is never sure, right? Uh, particularly when you find that much money. Oh, my gosh. And anyway, hey, thanks so much to today's panelists. Thank you, Philip Bump. Thank you, Lauren Burke. Thank you, John Bennett. Hey, before we go, um, we always get this question from listeners. How do people keep up with you? Uh, John, where do they find you uh, and can follow you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Bennett John T. At Bennett John T. How about you, Lauren? Uh, at LV Burke, L V B U R K E on Twitter. And, and you want to say a word about your podcast too? Sure. The podcast link is on my Twitter bio. Uh, mm -hmm. It is called Burke File, and uh, you know I've been doing it for about two years, but. You know, I can't say I'm alone. Everybody's got a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Philip Bump, you have a new newsletter. Tell us about it. I do. Speaking of things that everybody has, I just launched a newsletter this week called How to Read This Chart. And basically, it takes a look every week at an interesting data visualization that is related to the news and sort of digs through it and, and what it shows and, and how it tells the story, which I, which I hope will be interesting to folks. Uh, and then, of course, I'm at, on Twitter at Bump. All right. Thank you all. And thank you, everybody, for listening today. Uh, speaking of podcasts, of course, there's this one, Real Press Pod. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. Just wherever you go to listen to your podcast, pull up the Bill Press Pod and subscribe. It's fast and it's easy. And then you are a regular member. Uh, we'll be back next week with the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Where's that? Wear that mask. Go out and get your booster if you haven't already done so. And we'll see you next week on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.